All right, so hey, it's Zane Horowitz and the crew at the Oregon Point Center for January 30th, the first uh, Journal Club of 2014, and it's for the 50th anniversary of the Surgeon General's Report, um, which came out on January 11th, 1964, when Dr. Luther Terry, after two years of study and reviewing with a group over 7,000 articles, and back then there was no computers to pull it up, they like literally read and printed all those articles and read them, came up with the now famous Surgeon General's warning that cigarettes may be dangerous to your health. And uh, yes, amazing. And it wasn't until 1965, the Federal Cigarette Labeling and Advertising Act, that that little famous box warning went on every uh, cigarette pack, and it's changed over the years exactly what they said. The most recent ones actually have some graphic depictions on them as well. And then a few years later, they actually banned cigarette advertising on broadcast uh, media like radio and television. Um, but with the advent of e-cigarettes, those were not covered. No one could see back in 1969 that someone would invent the e-cigarette, and so that wasn't covered, and so that's why you see all those e-cigarette commercials now on television. But we're going to start out kind of building on some of the things that people get into, talk about some nicotine replacement, some of the things you can do to quit smoking, which is the ultimate goal. The number of people smoking in this country have dropped dramatically, but there are still... I think they said 45 million Americans who still smoke that uh, are responsible for a variety of up, which is now 60 to 70 different diseases have been associated with it. So we're going to start out with a couple of articles by our Pease Emergency Medicine Fellow um, about what kids get into that we worry about and calls that come into the poison center. So I'll let you start off with the first one about conventional and novel uh, tobacco products. Sure. So this was published in Pediatrics, uh, and kind of what they were looking at was these things they called novel uh, tobacco kind of things. So if there's actually a picture in the article, I don't know if you guys can see it, but there's these things like Camel uh, brand cigarettes put out called Orbs, which are basically little kind of like bite sizes. They look like candy, really. And they compared Tic Tacs and M&Ms, and it looked exactly the same. So <laughs> if you're a little kid, you see that hanging around, why wouldn't you put that in your mouth, right? Um, and so their goal was to kind of look back at that and see kids who ingested this, what do they come in with, what should we be concerned about, <clears throat> and how should we be regulating it? Uh, was there kind of big questions? <clears throat> so they started out just saying that about 90% of um, accidental poisonings happen in kids that are less than six. <clears throat> And uh, that now these things are coming out like camel orbs is what they were called that have this candy-like appearance. And then even at times to make it even worse, they actually add flavor to them to make them even more like candy. Um, when kids ingest uh, tobacco, as little as a milligram in a kid can cause symptoms of nausea, vomiting. If they have really severe toxic effects from nicotine, it can be weakness, convulsions, unresponsiveness. Um, and then obviously have issues breathing. Um, and there's even reports of death. The literature, the estimated minimal lethal pediatric dose is about a mg per kg um, of body weight is what they quote in their study. So what they did is that they looked back uh, through 2006 to 2008, and because 90% of ingestions happen in kids less than six, they looked at all kids less than six um, at 61 regional poison centers, and they were um, kind of looking for just reports of these uh, nicotine products that look like candy and are not heavily regulated, kind of packaging-wise for now. What they found was uh, just under 14,000 uh, cases were reported for all types of tobacco products. 
the majority of them, uh, greater than 70% of ingestions were actually in kids less than one, which I thought was kind of interesting. I thought it would have been more like two, three-year-olds, you know, not like eight months old <clears throat> getting into this kind of stuff, but the huge proportion was those kids. Um, and then they found kind of through their stats that uh, smokeless tobacco products represented an increasing proportion of tobacco ingestions uh, with each year of age from zero to five. So as kids got older, they were eating more of them, apparently. Um, and then, like a kid actually eating like a cigarette butt or something like that was the most common ingestion. But these new smokeless products like the Camel Orbs are now the second most common tobacco product that they ingested. Um, and on average, it looked like the products contained just under a milligram. So they contained 0.83 milligrams of nicotine per pellet. Um, their average pH is 7.9. And then 42% of the nicotine is in the, in the unionized form. And I was kind of wondering why they commented on that. And in the discussion, they said that um, the unionized form uh, is uh, absorbed more rapidly in the mouth, so it could enhance toxicity, which makes sense. Um, in the discussion, they kind of quoted some other stats. Smokeless tobacco use among adolescents. Um, has been increasing about 6% a year from 2002 to 2006. So it's starting to be more of a problem. And now it's getting to be more of a problem with these candy-like things that are flavored. And so teenage kids are trying them. Obviously, little kids like them because they taste good. They come in cinnamon, uh, mint flavors, apparently. And like I showed you guys, they look just like Tic Tacs or, or M&M. Um, and so in their reports, there weren't any kids that had died. Most of them got um, kind of GI-like effects where they were throwing up or, or feeling nauseous. It didn't look like there were any with seizures. A couple of them got kind of tired. Um, and then after they kind of defined, they were like hoping to define with the number of cases, they kind of just went through um, how this Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act um, kind of talked against using additives and flavors in cigarettes, but I guess apparently it doesn't pertain to these new new formulations. And so they're trying to bring up a new public health issue that we need to look a little bit more into these kind of candies and think about ways to, to package them and, and find ways to keep them out of kids' hands. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these laws are written. No one could foresee that we have can't you know nicotine sticks and nicotine candies and nicotine gum and all these things right. so all these laws don't apply and companies are more than happy to jump into the void and uh, these things market we were interestingly enough uh, portland was one of the three cities that was chosen to test market the orbs so before they became generally avail available to the rest of the country i forgot what the other cities were but i'm not sure why they picked us we were not like a big smoking city where you walk around and everyone's lighting up kind of thing. But, uh, so we had some of the original cases were called into us. So the next article is uh, about one of the nicotine replacement therapies that kids get into that we do worry about a little bit more, which are the transdermal patches. Mm -hmm. So that one I think also was published in pediatrics, but I was back in 97. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and just like you said, they were basically looking at the transdermal nicotine patch exposures for kids. And uh, it was a prospective case series over about a two-year period. And they included 34 U.S. poison centers and all children and adolescents, 0 to 15, who had been exposed to these uh, nicotine patches. Um, the kind of the way they opened it is they kind of just talked through, you know, adults obviously use these patches to hopefully stop smoking. It looks like the patches in general deliver about 22 milligrams of nicotine over a 24-hour period. Um, 
And then I thought it was interesting, even after they're used, like they're supposed to be used, there can be anywhere between 25 to 75% of residual nicotine um, in the patches. So even if a parent takes it off, throws it in the garbage, there's still a lot in there. Um, it even said that as much as 83 milligrams of nicotine can um, remain in these things, which obviously in a little kid, that's a huge dose for a kid to take. Um, it was estimated that 16 million Americans spend over a billion dollars on these kind of products a year. So there's a lot of uh, financial return for the cigarette companies to make these kind of things. The adverse reactions or effects that are most reported with these, um, obviously rashes, allergic skin reactions, anywhere they're, they're applied. And then like uh, we had mentioned with those orbs, any type of GI type stuff, so nausea, vomiting, they can get sleep disturbances, even headaches um, and chest pain instead as well. Um, and they, uh, so I said earlier in that other study, it talks about how like a mig per kg of nicotine was a lethal dose in kids. This uh, paper commented on some past series that have showed up to 0.2 milligrams per kilograms of ingested nicotine uh, can cause mild uh, symptoms, kind of like the GI stuff. Um, and then they even actually went on to talk about one really bad case. It looks like of an eight-month-old who got really obtunded, basically went into a respiratory arrest after he ingested two cigarette butts. So it's a, it's a big issue for kids to ingest any type of nicotine. Um, the other nice thing about kids ingesting nicotine, if you want to call it nice or not, but uh, is that it usually causes these GI effects, so they might just puke and throw up the orb or the cigarette butt or whatever. The problem now with these transdermal nicotine patches is obviously you're kind of uh, bypassing that protective mechanism of your body to, to puke out the nicotine, so you're going to absorb it a different way. Um, so their aim, kind of a, the, the objective of the study, was to characterize the medical consequences of unintended exposure uh, of kids to these nicotine patches. So like I said, they used 34 U.S. poison centers, kids 0 to 15 over a two-year period. Um, and the way they calculated their dose of nicotine that the kids got I thought it was interesting. They kind of just tried to estimate the duration of the time that the kid was exposed to the nicotine patch, and they kind of back calculated on how much was in the, the patch. So it seemed like a pretty good way to, to calculate how much the kids were getting. Uh, the results during that two-year time period, they found 33 cases of pediatric po poisoning by exposure to these patches. The mean age was about three years, which I think makes more sense to me than that eight-month-old, less than one year in the previous study. The range was anywhere from seven weeks, apparently, yeah. up to 14 years, and it was pretty even, 17 boys, 19 girls. Um, uh, when they kind of go into the exposures, the exposures range from kids pretty much like put it in their mouth and then spit it out, like one minute to as long as 12 hours that a kid had it on. Um, and then 78% of the kids were exposed to patches that had been like used and they kind of discarded. So they were used correctly and then the parents were able to get gut into it. So it's not necessarily a problem that kids are just like grabbing an unused pack. It's that parents probably aren't realizing that there's still a lot of nicotine in these when they, when they get them off. Um, there was even one kid who had fallen asleep, it sounds like, two, three-year-old who fell asleep in bed with his parents and during the sleep basically it fell off parent and got stuck on the kid. There was another one where unfortunately... A little girl, I don't know if she cut her leg or her arm or what, but mistook one of the patches for a Band-Aid and put it on her cut. Oh, that makes sense. Right, yeah. And then there was even a five-week-old. <laughs> no, there was a Band-Aid there. There was even a five-week-old who apparently was, like, sucking on his dad's arm and 
unintentionally dad didn't realize it but that's right where the patch was so oh. he was sucking on the nicotine patch so as you can see there's all kinds of different ways that people are getting into these and then it was even saying that adolescents are basically using them to there's been uses that adolescents do it just to kind of get the effects of nicotine and see what that feels like and then there was one case in here of a um, adolescent who was taking it to try to quit himself from smoking without telling his parents. Um, and I smoked for three years. Yeah, start early. Um, so in uh, in this case series, they had a 33 cases. Uh, 22 children suffered no toxic effects. 72% uh, were oral exposures, and 50% were dermal. It looked like. Um, the exposures, kind of when they would try to eat the patch or put the patch in their mouth, they had gagging, burning sensation over their mouth. So usually they kind of spit it out or puked it up. Um, there was a one-year-old who they said had an oral exposure um, and got really fatigued, but otherwise went to the ED, ED was watched for four hours and then sent home and did fine. Um, excuse me. They did then go on to talk about the dermal exposures. And as they had kind of predicted earlier without the body, like, puking it up or getting out of the system, uh, they would have more of an exposure. So the kids who had a dermal exposure more often had systemic complaints than the kids who had tried to like eat a patch or something like that. And most frequently they were GI stuff, nausea and vomiting. Um, they said that kind of on average, the most of the children's doses that they were exposed to was about 0.9 milligrams of nicotine per hour. Um, and then so that was kind of the big one. That was the dose or whatever, I guess. Um, they did talk about that uh, a previously used nicotine patch compared to a newly opened one was less likely to produce uh, symptoms, obviously. That kind of makes sense. There's less nicotine in it. Um, and then uh, one child placed two nicotine patches on their skin and sounds like grew up a whole lot, got really lethargic, ended up in the ED being observed for a while, but had no significant effects from it. Um, another thing that they found, which I think makes intuitive sense, that irrespective of the route, the duration of exposure to the nicotine patch correlated with symptoms of toxicity. So if you have it on longer, obviously you're going to have uh, more symptoms. Um, and then actually 88% of the kids uh, were exposed to nicotine for 20 minutes or longer. So it's, it's not like the kids were just kind of putting it on, checking it out. They just weren't seen to have it on. So it might have just been the parent didn't realize that they had put this patch on or not. Um, the mean estimated nicotine dose per kilo for symptomatic children uh, was about 0.18 mg per kg, and that was higher than that of asymptomatic children who had gotten about 0 0.006 mg per kg, so pretty low doses. Um, and then they did talk a little bit about uh, the care that these kids got in the ED. It looked like most of it was just supportive. Two patients did get Ipecac to help them throw up. One kid got activated charcoal, and then only two of the kids were admitted overnight observation but no other significant interventions they did go through to talk about six cases that they said had kind of more severe symptoms um but instead of going through them all kind of give you the the one-liners basically they they all had either gi things or um kind of irritation where they put the the patch um and then one kid did have a severe headache apparently um they did say several possible reasons for the relatively mild nature of their symptoms. They gave four explanations that they thought. One might have been that the duration of the exposure was very short. So if these kids had them on longer, we might have seen more severe toxicity. Two, the exposure type. So 
as opposed to chewing it and then throwing it up and kind of getting it out of your system. These kids were putting on patches and then they were stuck on there and being absorbed. Um, and then many of the exposures were to used uh, nicotine patches that have less nicotine than brand new ones. Um, they said if you ever get nicotine in less than 0.1 milligrams, apparently, uh, it's unlikely to develop any symptoms. Most of the nicotine patches are about 0.9 milligrams per uh, hour, so to get less than 0.1, you'd have to take off pretty quickly. Uh, they did go on to talk about the adolescents and talking about that um, adolescents not only, I guess, use these to try to quit um, quit smoking if they are smoking at age 10, but more more mm -hmm. commonly, they're using it to kind of experience, experiment with uh, nicotine. So it was just kind of a warning to doctors that if you're going to prescribe this to a parent or an adult, make sure that they keep it locked up and you know, keep it out of their, their kids' kids' ability to get to it. Um, they went through some of the limitations of their study. They kind of talked about that, I think, er earlier, kind of how they saw the symptoms. So one of the limitations was a lot of these exposures were from used patches, so that probably limited the, the symptoms that they were seeing. Um, exposure to multiple TNPs would increase your, your toxicity, and most kids only have one other than that kid who put two, two patches on it. Um, and then... Uh, kind of, I think. I think one of their kind of take-home things was that, yeah, that these these are bad, and um, parents need to be really cognizant about it. But I think that that was kind of one of the things is that we need to be better about educating the patients that we're prescribing them to. So parents need to realize that even though you're done using it, it still has a lot of nicotine in it. And kids are kids, and they'll get in the garbage can and pick up a patch, or to make sure you actually take it off and throw it away, as opposed to just falling off your body and letting your kid get it. And we actually recommend like the the two sticky ends fold over stick together nice and tight so you'd have to be a very aggressive toddler to kind of pull it apart. But, um, some of these are available now with over-the-counter so it's not like even prescribers have thing. I think when you just buy them I think you have to be aware of those issues but these contained up to 20-22 milligrams of nicotine each and you know when they came out we were very worried. You know our old sort of line was like one or two cigarettes, whole cigarettes, up to six cigarette butts were usually what we sent in. Although sometimes we watched, we were unsure of the story at home, see if they would throw up because almost everybody did. Where with this, you know, they, it's like I said, some of these are kids just like rolled over in bed and yeah. they got stuck on them. I thought it was a band aid, and <clears throat> so we were sending a lot of these kids in, and uh, some of them were getting symptomatic. Obviously, the first aid thing was get the pull it off and right. wash it off. Well, it's scary too because I think some and some of the kids. Mm -hmm. the, Patches falling off the parent, they didn't, the mom or dad didn't realize it. Yeah. You know, I guess you're not Well, I have problems with other patches too, like fentanyl yeah. patches, which are even more problematic. Yeah. So, the next thing up is, is the next thing that came along was these e cigarettes that sort of came out of nowhere. And actually, the way they work is there's a, a cartridge that can be replaced, and it looks sort of like a cigarette in many cases. And the cartridges have lots of nicotine in it, then you're supposed to, the term is vape them. So the first, we actually did a little coordination with our own Oregon Public Health Division here where they wrote a little uh, information sheet for uh, um, providers around the state. So what do we know about these things now? And, you know, they can describe what they use. They're supposed to mimic the act of smoking by vaping. And a lot of them have flavors, so they're attractive to teenagers, even though they're not supposed to be sold to anyone under 18. And despite this, lots of studies or several studies have shown that there's a use that's increased among kids and teenagers. It's quadrupled between just the few years they've been on the market between 2009 to 
2010, which is quite a bit, and in high schools as well. Um, in Oregon, the current e-cigarette use among 11th graders rose from 2% to 5% um, as of last year. So 5% of your high school whatever juniors are vaping now. So a problem that unfortunately will lead to nicotine addiction and dependency, and it's sort of a, a gateway mm -hmm. device into the real thing. We need a nicotine junior. Yeah. So because the, the FDA hasn't been able to regulate these yet, it's sort of, uh, you know, uh, it's sort of up in the air of what we can do about them. There's other toxic components in these things, but, and a lot of them have all sorts of great flavors like strawberry chocolate, Captain Crunch, and gummy bear flavors. So, <laughs> hey, what, what mature adult wouldn't want a Captain Crunch vape to, uh, yeah. you know, they just keep saying that. So I got an article, uh, there's a lot of couple of articles but I thought that we could do, but I figured I found one called Nicotine Content of E-Cigarettes, it's released in its vapor and how much is left afterwards. This is actually actually done out of the UK and they go again describe how the battery powered devices heat up this liquid nicotine solution which is often dissolved with either propylene glycol or glycerin you generate this vapor and the vaping thing is supposed to stimulate what tobacco smoking is but it doesn't bother your friends because you're not blowing smoke all around the room. So what they did is they went on eBay <laughs> and they bought um, or, or online, um, actually sorry, I'll say I take it back, eBay does not allow the sales of these devices, so I want to correct that so I don't get sued by anybody from eBay. <laughs> eBay is good, they do not let you sell these things, but they went on the internet and they bought five of these um, devices and then two disposable brands. I'm not going to mention them, but then they wanted to figure out how many were in these cartridges, and they did some assays. So um, some of these things are designed for about 300 puffs per cartridge, and they went ahead to try to estimate how much was in there. They used gas chromatography in a standard lab, um, and they used a smoking machine to figure out, and they wanted to have, sort of smoke the cartridge down, and they checked how much was there before and after. So basically, the nicotine content of cartridges varied within the same batch by as much as 12%. So despite what it said on the label, there was great variation. The differences between batches was up to um, 31%. Um, the amount of content in a, in a new cartridge um, was as high as 33 milligrams in one of the brands called Halo Extra High and as low as 12 in something called the Vaporese. Um, and these varied, again, batch to batch. Um, Brands were labeled to contain anywhere from 1.8 to 2.4 percent um, nicotine. Um, actually, the numbers were off from there, and the nicotine concentration in the vapor um, after puffing it also was variable from anywhere from 10 to 18 percent of nicotine present. A single puff of 70 milliliters should be estimated to deliver about 63 micrograms. Again, this is sort of on a mean. So 15 puffs are needed to give you a milligram of nicotine. So that often quoted could be toxic to a child dose. You'd have to puff on one of these cartridges or blow smoke into a child's face 15 times to get there. Um, and this other commented that all these models delivered actually less nicotine per puff than conventional cigarettes. Um, it really had unsubstantiated claims that they often said in the past that 30 to 60 milligrams of nicotine is fatal. They tried to run that down by looking through all the articles and they really aren't able to find anything, but they went back to a 19th century self-experiment uh, 
who's doing that project. I am. I'll give you the reference there. Awesome. And it, where this person leaves basically said this is the amount that is uh, uh, is the amount that's toxic or lethal in a human, and it's been uncritically repeated ad for hominem forever since that 19th century article. Um, so they think most of these things that we worried about sending them in, you know, they're probably because it's oral, they're going to start vomiting right away. We, if they're having symptoms, we probably ought to send them in. I don't think we can take any sort of estimation of how much they got based on spilled liquid from these cartridges, but they can deliver as much as 26 milligrams if you suppose that they took the biggest cartridge, that took the biggest amount and swallowed the entire liquid um, as uh, intact. So again, uh, we'll learn more about e-cigarettes as time goes on. And um, I think they're going to be a bit of a problem. And unfortunately, the biggest problem with them is it's sort of plucking young kids with colorful, fancy flavors. Um, so let's talk, switch gears and look to so what kids are exposed to to look at how do we get people who are smoking or want to quit smoking off. And we have like three different modalities available to us. We have nicotine replacement, which we'll talk about briefly. But I wanted to start off with talking about bupropion, which was sort of a little-used antidepressant that got pulled off the market originally because it caused toxicity, but then it found some new niches for itself as a um, smoking sensation product. So the question is, like, how well does it work? And we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but let's look at some of the toxic effects of people who uh, use it in three different reports. So the first one I want to look at is the uh, from a French pharmacovigilance database on serious reactions to propion specifically used for smoking sensation. Rebecca? Yeah, so the title of the article is Serious Adverse Reactions of Bupropion for Smoking Cessation. It was published in 2008 in Drug Safety. Um, and basically their goal was to um, look at all of the serious adverse um, events that had been reported in either this French pharmacovigilance database or GlaxoSmithKline, which was the manufacturer of bupropion. Um, and uh, look at the characteristics of the population they're prescribed to and see if there are any risk factors they could identify for some of the serious adverse reactions that had taken place. Um, so in randomized clinical trials, bupropion was showed, um, shown to um, improve smoking cessation compared to placebos, and they noted that most frequent adverse events were insomnia, headache, nausea, and dry mouth. Um, of note, no seizures were reported in the trials. Um, but in this paper, it says that uh, seizure risk in patients taking bupropion is estimate, estimated to be 0.1%. Um, so the reason for them doing this is they uh, cannot find really many large studies analyzing the serious adverse reactions in the literature. Um, so the way they evaluated this was in 2001, the drug was approved for um, nicotine replacement therapy in France. And so they started at that point and for three years monitored the databases that I mentioned um, for any serious adverse reactions. Um, and they define a serious adverse reaction as a serious, or a serious if it resulted in death, required inpatient hospitalization or prolongation of existing hospitalization, resulted in persistence or a significant disability or incapacity, or it was life-threatening. Um, and then they did a statistical analysis on most frequently occurring serious adverse reactions, which were seizures, angioedema, serum sickness-like reactions, ischemic heart disease, suicides, and suicide attempts. Um, and then they also compared the characteristics of people who were exposed to bupropion based on um, who was prescribed uh, via the FALS database, the database, I'm not sure how to say it. 
Um, so during those three years, there was a total of 698,000 patients treated in France uh, with bupropion sustained release. Um, there were 1,682 adverse reactions reported and 475 serious adverse reactions reported, which included 21 deaths. Um, and again, we're just going over the most commonly reported um, serious adverse reactions. Um, the first one they talk about is angioedema, so it occurred in 50 people who were taking bupropion. Um, and they noted that there, of these people, again, thinking about the characteristics of the population, they were slightly younger than the mean age of the population taking bupropion, which was 41 years old. So people who developed angioedema were about 37.5 years old, and most of them were female. And they thought this was uh, related to a, like a dose-related effect, and that the drug wasn't, uh, when it was being prescribed, wasn't taking into consideration the different weights of females compared to males. Um, the next one that looks at is serum sickness-like reaction. So 40 patients were reported to develop this. Um, and so the age, again, with this one, they were actually noted to be younger than the mean age of people taking bupropion. So they're about 35 years old, and there's no correlation with sex um, for serum sickness-like reaction. Uh, and then moving on to seizures, which was actually the most commonly reported serious adverse reaction. 75 people um, developed seizures commonly described as uh, generalized seizures. And um, they noted that half of the people who had seizures had predisposing factors um, or risk factors, such as a history of seizures, alcoholism, use of drugs, induced seizures, um, mostly being antidepressants. Um, so um, apparently there's a warning that you shouldn't be on bupropion if you have a risk factor history of seizures. So 50% of this group actually had um, or should not have been prescribed bupropion. Um, there are also three successful suicides and 19 suicide attempts um, that occurred during treatment with bupropion. Um, and the patients had a significantly lower mean age than the, uh, the estimated population. So they were about 36 years old compared to 41.4 years of the population, um, and I think this was related to the significantly lower age of the women who were prescribed bupropion. And half of the patients in this group actually had risk factors, including a history of depression, history of alcohol abuse, or previous suicide attempts, or schizophrenia. Um, so again, it's something that should have been considered before prescribing this to them. Um, and then there, interestingly, there were 11 cases of intentional overdose that occurred in people who were not undergoing treatment with bupropion. Um, and then, so moving on to the next biggest thing that occurred was ischemic heart disease. There are 22 cases, um, 17 were acute MIs, two unstable angina, and three angina cases. Um, and they recognized... Um, risk factors other than smoking were identified in 73% of the patients, um, often with having more than one, one risk factor, and they included dyslipidemia, diabetes, familial history of ischemic heart disease, obesity, hypertension, personal history of ischemic heart disease, um, and use of hormonal contraception. And then there were 11 deaths as well that were unexplained, and later in their conclusion section, they attribute this to um, the unexplained deaths, the mean age of the group was a little bit older, um, and people had risk factors for ischemic heart disease. So combining those two things, um, they concluded that it was most likely due to ischemic heart disease that these people passed away, even though there were autopsies done on them. Um, so 
all in all in their reporting, their basic conclusions were of these things. You have um, angioedema and serum sickness-like reactions, which um, they actually had a lower incidence of reporting um, than in the clinical trials, um, and the age was a little bit younger, and it was typically females. Um, and like I said before, it was they thought it was due to like a weight-related dose adjustments that weren't done for that. Um, and then for the seizures, they um, they so the risk for a seizure with bupropion sustained release at a dose of 300 milligrams a day has been associated with a seizure incidence ranging from 0 0.08 to 0 0.36. And in this study, the seizure incidence was 0 0.01, which was tenfold lower. Um, so they were thinking that maybe this was an underreporting of serious adverse reactions. Um, and they noted that 50% of the people who had seizures actually had some type of risk factor history of seizures and shouldn't have been, have been prescribed bupropion in the first place. Um, and then going into suicide attempts, so um, looking at the population in France compared to the group who were prescribed bupropion, they actually found that age and sex characteristics to be very similar um, for people who had attempted or completed suicide. So, um, they weren't drawing any solid conclusions, but didn't think that necessarily bupropion increased your risk of suicide or suicide attempts. Um, but that 66% of the people who did have a suicide attempt or completed suicide has had risk factors. Let's see, and then finally, with the cardiovascular risk, risk factors, um, they suggested that there it wasn't any higher incidence in the general population in France, those who were on bupropion compared to those who weren't. Um, and so to draw the conclusion that bupropion increased cardiovascular risk factors would require an epidemiologic study um, taking into account more of the risk factors and what they were able to do. Um, and then finally, I think the biggest point they were making is just considering the pharmacokinetics of bupropion and um, how long it takes for like the um, program levels to reach a steady state in your system is right around the two-week mark, and they notice that that's when most of these adverse reactions happen, and so doctors, when prescribing bupropion, should be aware that um, within the first two weeks of treatment, they should be thinking about these um, serious adverse reactions and kind of consultations on things that could happen. Yeah, it seems like they could have done a little better job of screening. Bupropion you know, was a antidepressant, but it got pulled off the market because it caused seizures in an unacceptably high number of folks and then it sort of came back for this new niche. The angioedema part I think is also interesting. It's not too many drugs cause angioedema. It's a rare occurrence with this but something to be aware of and certainly good reasons for stopping these drugs but uh, um, you know, it's out there. We'll get to how effective it is compared to other things in a second but one of the things that comes up with the poison center a lot is you know somebody comes in like oh I made a mistake I took one in the morning it's an XR I took another one at lunchtime what do I do about it so is there any problems with that we have one paper that actually addressed that issue and uh, the extra dosing of bupropion um, who's got that? Can't, go ahead. So uh, title of this article is Adverse Effects Associated with Extra Doses of Bupropion, um, which was uh, published in uh, Journal Pharmacotherapy in 2005. And basically, uh, they wanted to um, do a retrospective review um, of cases, like you just mentioned, Dr. Horowitz, um, of uh, patients that had um, basically dosing errors where they took an extra dose um, or were, um, you know, given an extra dose uh, um, uh, mistakenly. So um, what they did is 
they um, conducted a review from the uh, Toxic Exposure Surveillance System tests um, from the AAPCC, the American Association of Poison Control Centers. Um, they queried from 2000 to 2003. Um, inclusion criteria for um, this study was um, to identify uh, therapeutic errors affecting adult or adolescent patients regarding bupropion um, who are taking any form of the medication as long-term therapy. Um, and then it was uh, set to exclude certain um, issues, including multiple uh, co-ingestions, um, and then if they had an unknown amount of um, bupropion that they took, or um, unknown effects, if they for some reason didn't get um, a good enough uh, backstory regarding that. Um, and then they basically analyzed the uh, frequency of um, various adverse effects and um, kind of were able to um, identify uh, the most common and um, some that uh, were included but uh, were more rare. Um, so initially they were able to identify 1,508 um, total uh, administered dosing errors re related to bupropion. Um, but then with their um, exclusion criteria, they were only able to keep 476 patients into the study. Um, some of the characteristics of the um, patients that were included, um, patients uh, age range from 13 to 92 years with a mean of 40. Um, women were more often involved than men at 74%. Um, most patients took the sustained release form of bupropion, um, which was uh, about 70%, 69.7% um, were taking uh, the 150 milligrams extended release. Um, and then the ingested doses were ranged from 75 to 1500 milligrams. Um, only about 26% of the overall that were included in this study ended up being evaluated in the emergency department. Um, and as expected, the doses of the patients that ended up being evaluated in the emergency department ended up being higher than the patients that um, did not be, be evaluated. Um, some other characteristics of the uh, study population, activated charcoal was uh, administered to 42 patients. Um, however, that uh, the administration of charcoal did not... Um, was not significantly uh, affecting the outcome um, of uh, adverse clinical effects in those patients. Um, so uh, specifically one thing that they looked at was like seizures um, when charcoal was administered and when it was not. Um, let's see, so when charcoal was administered, a third of those patients, so 33% of those patients had adverse effects um, whereas when no charcoal was administered, 37.8% had adverse effects. And then um, seizures were reported in four patients um, that received charcoal, and uh, one patient uh, progressed to status epileptiches. So um, the, uh, they present a table here. Um, which just kind of lists the, the frequency of um, adverse effects that were identified. Um, the most common 
was agitation seen in um, 39 patients or 8.2% of the overall um, study population. Also listed was dizziness, tremor, nausea and vomiting, drowsiness, tachycardia. Seizures occurred in four of the patients for a total of 0.8% of the study population and then hallucinations. Um, so overall, it looks like about 38.4% of the study population um, had at least one adverse effect. Um, and they, um, they stratified the uh, adverse effects um, into various categories, including no effect, minor effects, moderate effects, major effects, um, and then deaths. Um, actually, no deaths were reported here. Um, and in the patients that uh, had adverse effects, um, the doses that they ingested um, were ended up being higher uh, than the um, doses ingested with uh, the patients that did not have any adverse effects. Um, and um, one thing that was interesting was that um, the group that was found to have no effects at all actually were taking some, um, they ingested actually quite large doses um, up in the higher range of the um, overall ingested doses seen in the study. Um, so the main goal of this uh, study was basically to identify the most common adverse effects when, um, you know, they were just small dosing errors and you accidentally um, take an extra um, dose of your medications. Uh, it looks like the most common, um, as I mentioned earlier, were the agitation, dizziness, tremor, nausea, vomiting, drowsiness, and tachycardia, and then it dips down um, to pretty rare uh, adverse effects after that, which were seizures and hallucinations, which were less than 1%. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it produces a quandary for us. There's a lot of drugs we see people call in, they have no suicidal attempt, and we try to watch them at home if we can. Unfortunately, it looks like, at least from this study and others we've reviewed, bupropion fails that test because 30% has an adverse effect, 1% has seizures, and of those, one person had status epilepticus. So it's, we're sort of stuck on who we watch at home. They sort of tried, although the numbers are small, to create some milligram cutoffs. So 400 milligrams a day were associated with some adverse effects, and seizures always seem to occur at 450 milligrams a day. So we've created at least with our poison center, some policies on when to send in, and there's three or four different formulations of the bupropion immediate release and two or three extended release formulations. So our threshold to send them in is actually quite low. It's very close. It's got a narrow toxic therapeutic ratio because we really don't want to like say, well, you took an extra one, that's okay, you can stay at home, and you know, if you have a seizure, have your friends call 911. I don't think we're <laughs> at that point right now. Um, so we're stuck, and unfortunately we do, you know, if you were to apply it to this population, we'd send maybe 400 of these 450 patients in just to try to avoid two or three very serious adverse effects, but um, it is what it is. To show you how sick some of these people can be with intentional overdoses, we have one last paper on the toxicity of bupropion about uh, both its cardiac toxicity with some concentration. Yeah. So this is um, a case report of delayed bupropion cardiotoxicity associated with elevated serum um, bupropion levels, but not hydroxybupropion. Um, so the background for this, essentially, um, bupropion is extensively metabolized in the liver um, with three active metabolites, which are hydroxybupropion, erythrohydrobupropion, and 3-O-hydrobupropion. 
Um, and the primary um, CYP enzyme that's responsible for the metabolism of bupropion is uh, CYP2B6, um, as well as minor contributions from others. And um, CYP2B6 uh, mainly turns bupropion into hydroxybupropion, so that's the main metabolite that's actually made. And again, it is an active metabolite. Um, and it still um, retains about one-half the potency of bupropion. Um, and so essentially, this paper was a case report of taking serial levels of um, both bupropion and hydroxybupropion in a person who had cardiotoxicity. And so severe cardiotoxicity um, is rare, but large overdoses um, have basically been associated with some QRS and QTC uh, prolongation. Um, so the case in this um, study was a 31-year-old HIV-positive gentleman with a past history of depression. Um, who was brought to the emergency department at 10 in the morning with symptoms of confusion. He was last seen normal on um, the night before and was found um, with a bottle of, uh, an empty bottle of extended release bupropion um, by his roommate. Um, essentially brought into the emergency department, um, was a little tachycardic at 104. His other vital signs were pretty normal. Um, he was alert um, but slightly confused. Um, initial ECG that was 30 minutes after arrival at 10.30 in the morning showed sinus tach with a mildly increased QRS at 112 and a QTC of 493. Um, about 1040, so 10 minutes after that ECG, um, he had a generalized um, tonic-clonic seizure, um, got some lorazepam, which was aborted, um, and then had to be intubated for airway protection after having um, some uh, about 10 episodes of uh, tonic-clonic seizures. Um, then became hypotensive with a systolic pressure between 50 and 60, um, got IV fluids and norepi, and then was somewhat stable. Um, as for the labs that they drew on him, everything was essentially normal. Potassium was a little low at 3.6. Um, AST um, was 68, and ALT was 40. Um, his CK was 396, and peaked on hospital day 3 at 18,497. Um, acetaminophen level was 45, um, and his comprehensive toxicology screen was positive for bupropion, hydroxybupropion, chlorpheniramine, and dextromethorphan. Um, they did a comprehensive tox screen with a liquid chromatography mass spec, um, and that's basically how they continued to measure his serum um, bupropion and hydroxybupropion levels throughout the course of his hospitalization. Um, when they were able to quantify them, the dextromethorphan concentrations were only mildly elevated at um, less than 150 nanograms per mil. Um, the chlorpheniramine um, were low and peaked out at 15 nanograms per mil. Um, and his bupropion levels peaked about 13 hours after admission at 334. Um, a normal therapeutic concentration of bupropion is 50 to 100. Um, and then his hydroxybupropion peaked way later, um, 43 hours after admission at 4,302 nanograms per mil. Um, during the course of his hospitalization, um, he did well initially after being intubated, but about 12 hours after presentation, um, cardiac telemetry began to show frequent PVCs and um, ventricular bigeminy. Uh, his QRS interval widened to 132. Um, so he was given 44 milliequivalents of sodium bicarb um, and then started on an infusion of sodium bicarb after that. Um, QTC was also noted to be prolonged at 502. Um, so he was given 2 grams of mag sulfate. Um, about 24 hours later, his QRS and QTC were better, but no immediate effect was noted by the sodium bicarb. Um, he did get GID, con uh, GID contamination with whole bowel irrigation and 50 grams of activated charcoal. Um, and then by hospital day 3, his neurostatus improved. Um, and no longer had any seizures after they got EEG.
Um, so essentially, in looking at this case, what they did see, if you look at some of the figures here, so in looking at figure two, um, you can see that the um, range of his cardiotoxicity was directly correlated um, with his bupropion levels, um, which peaked again at 13 hours after admission. Um, and as the bupropion levels fell, his uh, QRS and QTC um, intervals started to narrow, respectively. Um, whereas his hydroxybupropion levels stayed elevated up to 80 hours after admission, basically, and the cardiotoxicity had resolved by that time. So the authors postulate that um, the bupropion itself and not its active metabolite are the most likely um, culprits, or the bupropion is the most likely culprit for the cardiotoxicity. Um, essentially, they kind of cited some other articles here um, in their discussion and noted that a study that was in guinea pig hearts showed that bupropion inhibited the delayed rectifying potassium current, um, which probably explains the QT prolongation. Um, however, bupropion, again, like was seen in this case, prolongs the QRS interval as well. And so initially, you probably think that was due to sodium channel blockade, um, but it didn't get better with sodium bicarb, um, as again was evidenced in this case. And so what they found in these guinea pig hearts, however, um, was that it wasn't sodium channels that were affected the, by the bupropion, but it was rather um, disturbance of cardiac intracellular coupling via their gap junctions. Um, and that was the mechanism by which the QRS is prolonged. Um, and so... Um, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, so a nice case report with levels documenting that the toxicity, the cardiac toxicity with EKG changes peaks when the levels peak. They're expected to stay up for probably the first 24 hours or, or more. And that despite the classic EKG with QRS widening and R-wave and AVR and all the things we talk about with sodium channel blockers, bicarb didn't seem to help, and at least they apply some animal model that plausibly says, well, maybe there's a different way you can get the same findings without actually blocking the sodium channel that have to do with the tight junction couplings. Um, it's probably to be explored in more models in the future. But uh, again, so bupropion can be dangerous, certainly in massive overdoses. It causes big problems, and those are all getting sent in because they're intentional, but we should be prepared to intubate them and treat their seizures very early. So thanks to all three of you for those bupropion stories. We're going to change gears a little bit for the last set of articles here and ask not so much the safety of the drugs, but how well do they work? If we're going to spend millions of dollars in this country as a goal to stop smoking, which is an admirable goal, do these variety of options, bupropion, nicotine replacement, then we'll talk about last, uh, Shantex, do they actually work and how long do people need to take them? So I'll start out with an article, uh, which is a randomized trial, which the last groups will be, of nicotine replacement therapy, or NRT, versus bupropion versus nicotine replacement and bupropion for smoking sensation in a clinical practice, once again, um, out of the UK in the, in the journal Addiction in um, 2013. And this was based on the fact that the manufacturer of bupropion had submitted phase three trials to get it approved which showed bupropion to be substantially more beneficial than a nicotine patch. And despite that, there was like a handful of smaller studies since then, which weren't so sure that that was truly the case. There were six small trials that showed no evidence of benefit uh, with a confidence interval across one if, when they were all pooled together. So this was a trial in four national health service areas around London. Uh, it was sponsored by the King's College of London and people who provide our uh, liver failure uh, guidelines to us. It was open-labeled, so people knew what they were getting, but uh, they were able to measure a variety of ways of smoking sensation. 
Um, everybody got some sort of behavioral support during their clinic visits. Um, and then people who were, you know, randomized to one of these three groups. Um, and then they followed them up with a variety of ways to check on their, whether they stopped smoking, which we'll talk about. So all the medicine was provided free of charge to them. Um, those who got assigned to the nicotine replacement therapy were actually able to pick between the variety of products that were available. So they can say, I want the patch or I want the nasal spray or whatever other was available. Most of them actually did pick the patch. We'll get into the numbers in a second. Those assigned to be propion, either with or without the nicotine replacement, took 150 milligrams for the first six days and then they upped them to 300 milligrams of the sustained release formulation for the remainder of the eight-week course of the study. They had a pre-treatment questionnaire. Um, they came back to them a lot of times. They used end-expired carbon monoxide measurements, which many of the studies to verify that, that when they said they quit, they actually have quit. Yeah, um, so that's very good. They were able to have a physiologic way of documenting that. And unfortunately, one of the short uh, come out, uh, comes of the study was they did a 90% power calculation to detect a, uh, a difference, and they estimated they would need um, 700 people in each group. And when they finally closed the trial, they had 400 plus in the NRT group, 400 in the bupropion, and 200 in the combination study. So quite short of their at least mathematical goal of what would be a powered study. Nonetheless, we could take some message home from the results. The participants were all well matched. There's always that table that shows that the same number of men and same number of underlying illnesses were there. Um, a lot of them had a prior smoking-related illness, about 40%, so they had motivation perhaps for quitting. 38% um, of them had succeeded in stopping smoking for as long as a month within the last five years, so they had been down this route before and had failed. Um, those who got nicotine replacement, 48% um, chose to use the patch. The other products, gums, lozenges, inhalers, nasal spray, and microtabs were less used. Um, and interestingly enough, because they had to like, enroll in the study, then they had to go back to their general practitioners to get a prescription. So maybe some of these GPs read that French study because 57 general pr practitioners refused to prescribe bupropion for a variety, variety of reasons to people who were randomized to those arms of the study because they felt those patients would not tolerated or shouldn't be on it. So um, of the pay ones who participated and they completed all the follow-ups, 58% um, reported smoking at one of the follow-ups. So more than half were still smoking. Um, the outcome completion rate was about 84% overall, so they lost a few to each follow-up. They screened over 6,000 patients, randomized about 1,000. There was about 400, 400, and then 200 in the different groups. Um, the abstinent rates were compared to the whole sample and to intention to, to treat sample as well. And so the, there was no evidence, the bottom line here is no evidence of an effectiveness difference between bupropion and the nicotine replacement on any of their primary or secondary outcome measures. So just using nicotine replacement, which is far safer or side effects, was just as effective as bupropion, and there was no additional benefit to doing both. So that's the bottom line outcome. But as far as how well do any of these do, um, the relapse rate, meaning that once you've got started smoking again, was about 50% in the bupropion group. Um, and of the ones who were successful quitting smoking completely at the end of the study, 
29% of the patch users and 26% of the patch users, 26% of the program groups were completely successful. So about one out of four, ultimately, after the eight-week trial, were able to stop smoking. When they tried to parse out some of the subgroup analysis, you'd say, well, maybe people with depression do better on bupropion. And in fact, they did a little bit better. Uh, about 29% quit smoking with, who had depression and got bupropion versus 18% who got nicotine replacement. Um, as far as unwanted symptoms, if any of the ones we talked about, there was allergic reactions and angioedema but in the bupropion group, but there were no serious adverse reactions in the nicotine replacement group. Um, disturbed sleep was probably the worst that most people had in both groups. Um, and a lot of people had nasal irritation if they chose the nicotine nasal spray, as you might imagine. So um, basically their bottom line is they didn't find that there's an effectiveness difference between the three arms and the effectiveness rate is about one quarter overall and a well-matched study with all sorts of incentives quit. Um, the trial had some limitations in that they didn't get to their statistical goal, but they felt that these numbers, at least for not showing a difference, were reasonable. Um, probably a bigger study, as they always say, is probably necessary to get real answers. Um, and longer-term cessation rates may be better if we look more than the eight-week period. Um, and maybe, based on what they saw, if you have depression and smoking, maybe there's a slight advantage to using propion, provided you don't have any of those other contraindications for being put on bupropion. So perhaps despite all the hoopla and all the risks with bupropion, and certainly the risk of massive uh, cardiovascular and CNS toxicity for massive overdoses, we need a new product. And the new product that came along is an interesting drug called Veranexycline, which is trade name Chantex. So we have two articles looking at that, one of which was one of the major articles that got it to the market in the first place. And the last one's an article literally hot off the presses from last week's, last month's JAMA on looking at, again, is it better than the competitors? So to start us off with Veracycline uh, versus uh, sustained use propion and placebo, uh, Jen, tell us about this big landmark article. Yeah, so this uh, study, again, was published in JAMA just very recently. Um, combination Brenaclean and Bupropion uh, SR for tobacco dependence treatment and cigarette smokers. So um, just uh, there was a pilot study um, that looked at combination therapy with Brenaclean and Bupropion um, as a combination and essentially said that it was well tolerated with smoking abstinence rates exceeding those observed in prior trials with either drug as monotherapy. So based on the pilot study, the, the, that's kind of what spurred this official uh, randomized controlled trial. So the objective of this trial was to investigate the efficacy of uh, combination pharmacotherapy with renaclean and bupropion SR for smoking cessation compared to renaclean therapy monotherapy um, and they did this um, by doing a randomized multi-center uh, phase three cl clinical trial. It was double-blinded um, and placebo-controlled. Um, it, it took place at the Mayo Clinic and a couple different of the Mayo Clinic sites. Um, and it involved essentially a 12-week treatment period with follow-up through 52 weeks. So their inclusion criteria uh, included you had to be at least 18. You had to smoke at least 10 cigarettes a day for at least six months. And you had to be motivated to want to quit smoking. 
Um, and otherwise, and you also had to be in, in good health because we'll see they have quite a long list of exclusion criteria. So they're excluded if, if you're pregnant, lactating, or likely to become pregnant. Um, if you have any unstable medical condition, someone else in your house is in the study, uh, if you have any allergies to the medications, um, if you currently use um, any other tobacco tr dependence treatment, um, if you have unstable angina, uh, if you have a history of renal failure, any history of seizures, any history of suicidal thoughts, any history of closed head trauma, history of psychosis, and pretty much any uh, psychiatric disorder, um, any active substance abuse, any antipsychotic use, any antidepressant use, and any hypertension. As well as any uh, appropriate run of the mill healthy smoker. Exactly. So essentially, what they did is their their study protocol involved um, eleven clinic visits and then a few telephone screening calls and follow up calls. Um, they assessed smoking dependence by the Fagerstrom test for nicotine dependence. Um, they assessed depressive symptomatology um, by a, a depressive depression inventory um, and so they looked at those as well in kind of uh, in the overall picture of this um, so they actually used a computerized generated randomization to assign patients to either uh, combination or monotherapy um, it was double-blinded so the participants and the investigators all had uh, no idea which medication they were using um, so during the clinic visits, the participants got um, brief, less than 10-minute behavioral counseling. Um, I'm not sure how effective that can be in less than 10 minutes. Um, but they also uh, recorded their tobacco use status, vitals, and, and like, uh, like Zane mentioned, they also did the, the carbon monoxide measurement as a, as a test um, to, to verify that they were indeed not smoking. Um, and then they also had them, they, they documented their weight, and they also had them do the uh, tobacco craving and nicotine withdrawal assessments. And then they also did pill counts to make sure they were actually taking their medication. So as far as the medications, um, the, the varenicline was um, orally in blister packs. Um, they started at a dose of a half a milligram daily for three days and titrated that um, up to twice daily. Um, and then the maintenance dose. Um, and then the bupropion uh, SR also was titrated um, up as, as you know, we've seen in other trials and other uh, initiation of bupropion therapy. Um, so the study endpoint was uh, biochemically confirmed prolonged and seven-day point prevalence uh, smoking abstinence rates. So they defined um, point prevalence as no smoking in the past seven days, and this again was confirmed with carbon monoxide, and they did this at each of the follow-up clinic visits. And then they defined prolonged abstinence as no use of, of smoking, uh, no, no smoking after two weeks after their quit date. So they didn't really count the first two weeks, and they wanted to look at after that first two weeks, did you go back and have any cigarettes? And then they fought, so they followed up at uh, week 12, week 26, and week 52, and did all those same outcomes. And then they had some secondary outcomes, um, prolonged and seven-day point prevalent smoking abstinence rates, again, at 20, weeks 26 and 52. And then they also looked at the tobacco craving and nicotine withdrawal symptoms, and then uh, weight changes. So overall, they had um, 506 
that were randomly assigned to their medication groups. Um, overall study completion rates were 62%. So, um, you know, 38% didn't uh, actually even complete the, the therapy. But that was, it was pretty similar in both groups, 63% in the Veronicline and 61% in the combo group. Um, when they looked at the smoking abstinence, um, they found that combination therapy was associated with a higher uh, prolonged smoking abstinence at weeks 12 and 26. Unfortunately, um, they didn't find any difference at week 52. Um, and then at the seven-day point prevalence was no different at any time in the study. When they looked at nicotine withdrawal and tobacco craving, they didn't find any differences between the group. When they looked at weight changes they and weight gain specifically, that's something that lots of people are concerned about in quitting smoking. Um, they found that uh, there was less weight change in the combination group at week 12, and that was 1.1 kilograms versus 2.2 kilograms of weight gain. Um, but again, at no, there was no difference at 26 or 52 weeks. Uh, when they looked at adverse events, um, the combination group had more anxiety and depression, or depressive symptoms, and the Runaclean group had uh, more flatulence. And uh, interestingly, if you look at the, if you actually look at the table where they report the adverse effects, there are a couple other things that, while they don't quite meet the 0.05 p-value 0.05, they still have a pretty strong trend. So if you look at there's um, the combination group actually had. Uh, a lot more abnormal dreams. The p-value was 0.08, so you can take that for what it's worth. Um, and in addition, um, there was more. It looks like more people in the uh, combination group reported fatigue than the, in the propion group. Um, there was a couple significant adverse events during the study um, in both groups, but they they went through all the events and they decided that probably none of them were related to to the therapy. And then interestingly, um, they went through and they did some additional kind of stratification and they looked at all of their outcomes, um, but they did it by stratified how heavy of a smoker you are. So they found that essentially none of their outcomes were significantly different between the combination group and the Veronicline group if you were a light smoker. But in the heavier smokers, so if you smoked more than 20 cigarettes a day, um, receiving combination therapy was more likely to achieve prolonged smoking abstinence at weeks 12, 26, and 52. Similarly, with the nicotine dependence, <clears throat> if you had lower moderate nicotine dependence, um, they didn't find any significant differences in abstinence outcomes. But if you had a high level of nicotine dependence, and again, this was based on their um, their uh, little uh, questionnaire. questionnaire that they, <laughs> that they uh, filled out, um, they did find that for the high levels of nicotine dependence, their combination therapy was also associated with the higher uh, prolonged abstinence. And again, that was at, at 12, 26, and 52 weeks as well. So, um, so overall, uh, they essentially concluded that uh, combined use of the Renaclean and Bupropion compared to Renaclean alone resulted in increased prolonged abstinence. Um, at 12 and 26 weeks, but not at 52 weeks. Um, I thought it was interesting, the, the weight change also was interesting, um, that it was significantly different at 12 weeks, but not at the later follow-ups. Um, it seems at first you would think that, well, it's just 
not as a, you know, it's not, doesn't have as much of an effect, but that might actually be a significant effect if, if you can get them still on the program for 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if someone in the first 12 weeks is gaining a lot of weight, they, they're, you know, you'd see, think that they would be more likely to stop the treatment. But, but overall, um, they, they did have some limitations. Um, you know, 38% didn't complete the study. This was a very limited population, so the generalizability might be a little bit uh, compromised. Um, but overall, I thought it was a pretty good study um, looking at the combination therapy versus uh, Chantixolone. Yeah, so, I mean, if you wait a year, you know, it's adding two things together probably doesn't make a difference, mm -hmm. except maybe in those really heavy smoking people. So, but the side effects clearly, as we've seen with all the bupropion, seem to be worse with uh, bupropion in general. All right, good. So our last study was actually the one we were going to do first, but I'll, we'll backtrack and go to the other. This is the original study that actually helped get veronicline, never say, veronicline, I said that right, uh, versus placebo and also bupropion um, on everyone's radar screen. All right, so this actually was also published in JAMA. Um, Obviously, it's cycline and alpha-4-beta-2-nicotinate acetylcholine receptor partial agonist, and they compared it to bupropion and placebo. Um, we all know that it's really hard to quit, as demonstrated by all the previous studies. They <laughs> talk about how the role of the alpha-4-beta-2-nicotinate acetylcholine receptor subtype causes reinforcement, potentially, of nicotine and through dopamine turnover and release in the nucleus accumbens, which sort of gets all of your addiction. And they talked about how it being a partial agonist, it's able to cause a release of dopamine to reduce the craving, while at the same time partially antagonizing and blocking the binding and reinforcement of the effects of smoking. You're sort of hitting it from the two ends. Um, it comes from a natural plant alkaloid. It has pretty high affinity. And uh, it's believed that it actually, its agonist effects lead to a 35 to 60% release of what you would expect from nicotine. So not a full release, but at least enough to potentially calm that craving. And they talked about, because this was a phase three trial, they went through a randomized, multi-center, double-blind, parallel group, placebo and active treatment controlled uh, phase three clinical trial. They looked at 12 weeks, and then they followed up at 52 weeks. So they did media advertising, so they just sort of requested folks that were looking for to quit. Uh, they had to be anywhere between 18 and 75. They have to smoke at least 10 cigarettes per day, um, had uh, fewer than three months of smoking abstinence in the past year, so hadn't tried to quit, quit recently and wanted to stop smoking. Like the study that Jen talked about, they had a significant number of exclusion criteria. You couldn't have diabetes, you couldn't have seizures, you couldn't have any serious disease in the last six months. You couldn't take diabetes medications that were insulin or oral hypoglycemic. So basically, you have to be diet controlled. You could, your liver and kidneys had to be a normal. There couldn't be any major heart disease in the last six months. You couldn't have hypertension. You couldn't have any chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. No cancers. No known history of recent allergies. So you're looking for like super healthy population. <laughs> and not only are they doing that, they also excluded uh, folks with psychiatric history. So you really couldn't have major depressive disorder, no recent uh, in the past year exacerbations of 
chronic psychiatric diseases, bipolar, psychosis, eating disorders. So now you're physically healthy as well as mentally healthy. Mm -hmm. And then they discussed you also had to have normal body weight, so nothing, a BMI less than 38 and greater than 15. So you couldn't be underweight or overweight significantly. And they also talked about uh, this case of bupropion sort of losing efficacy over time. So if you'd ever been on bupropion before, you weren't allowed to be part of the study. And of course, women were excluded if they were not willing to um, use effective contraception. They didn't want to be responsible for any teratogenic effects. Um, so they had a randomized through a computer system. They, it was active uh, drug versus placebo over the 12 weeks. And they basically had the varinocycline and the bupropion were split with similar dosing. So you really couldn't tell the difference of where you are. And they obviously gave you a placebo for the other ones. And they gave you a target quit date of eight days after your like first visit. Uh, they did phone interviews um, three days after your target quit date to see what was going on. And then during the 12 weeks of the study, you actually had uh, weekly clinic visits to sort of see how you were dealing with your smoking status, whether you're being compliant with medications and you know overall safety, because it does have some of worsening depression. Uh, then they, after you completed the 12 weeks, then they followed you at multiple clinic visits throughout the time period to evaluate how you'd done after you completed treatment. Um, folks were screening to make sure that um, they looked had a normal physical exam, their vitals were all normal, they didn't have any comorbidities that were revealed in the laboratory studies. And then they also then checked electrocardiograms, chemistry analysis, urinalysis, initially and throughout the course of the 12 weeks of actual active treatment or when folks decided, I don't want to use these drugs, they made sure that there was no abnormalities that were noted. Um, they established the smoking status uh, by self-report and then they actually measured carbon monoxide measurements of less than 10 parts per million. Primary endpoint of the study was um, whether folks had been uh, abstinent for uh, weeks 9 through 12, and that was all proportion of folks that were not smoking, and that was not even a puff, or um, using any sort of nicotine-containing products, which I was a little bit confused by because I wouldn't expect a patch to give you a carbon monoxide. So I, don't, I didn't right. really understand how they... I think they probably meant any sort of smoke, like pipes or okay. anything else. But yeah, but yeah. you're right. Nicotine shouldn't give you make give you a positive continine test in your urine, but, but it shouldn't give you a carbon your... monoxide. Right. Um, and then the secondary points were um, if you continue to be abstinent from weeks nine through twenty four, and then weeks nine through fifty two, and then they looked at other uh, endpoints: a seven day prevalence of abstinence, week 12, 24, and 52. So they're basically just checking you all along different ways. How good have you been at keeping away from cigarettes? Um, to be fair, they also sort of looked at the psychological component of smoking, especially if they're uh, sort of claiming that it prevents cravings. And they administered three separate um, surveys and questionnaires to sort of see what the effect on those drugs were on the actual dependence. They did significant amount of statistics. They powered to 90%, significance of 0.05. They were looking for uh, odds ratios in regards to how bupropion was doing in regards to varincycline. Uh, they sort of discussed what they considered 
if you didn't show up to clinic visits, if you sort of weren't followed up, they assume that you got back in the wagon. And that might be, from our perspective, it gives us, this is the best scenario, but you never know. These people might have actually quit and been successful. And uh, in regards to results, um, turns out that it only really 60% of everybody that was enrolled completed the whole year follow-up um, for barren cycling, 56 for bupropion and 54 for placebo. Most folks sort of discontinued while they were taking the drugs. And most people discontinued because they sort of disappeared through the crash, which is sort of common in this kind of study when you're media recruiting. Uh, and it turns out that most people, there's similar compliances along the entire range of three arms. Uh, when they were looking at a uh, four-week time frame, they had a four-week continuous time frame in which they were through weeks nine and 12. Barren um, cycling was the best at 44%. Uh, placebo was hanging out at 17.7%, whereas bupropion did 29.5%. Uh, turns out, the two intervention arms actually did better than placebo in that time frame. Regards to the point prevalence, it looks like um, varincycline uh, when compared to placebo was better. And uh, varincycline was better than bupropion in that seven-day time period. There was no sex differences noted in the effects of these drugs. And it turns out that both uh, varincycline and bupropion uh, reduce their urge in comparison to placebo, which sort of makes sense because there was an intervention taking place. And it turns out that varincycline had a greater effect when compared to placebo and bupropion. Turns out that it also costs more side effects. Uh, folks were uh, increased appetite. They also uh, had reduced restlessness which was not present with bupropion. And then when you looked at all of the craving surveys, it turns out that um, varincycline uh, did better than uh, placebo and actually better than bupropion for um, the QSI as well as the MECQ. Regards to weight, which in this population, tend, at least in the female component, tends to be a very important stimuli. Uh, everybody sort of gained weight. Uh, varincycline was 2.37 kilograms, whereas bupropion was 2.12, and then placebo was 2.92. So it turns out bupropion was a little bit better. Safety and tolerability kind of goes back. Uh, most folks ate. 0.6% discontinued the drug in the varincycline arm, 15.2 in the bupropion, and 9 in the placebo. And uh, nausea was pretty uh, large for the varincycline, almost greater than a quarter actually experienced that. And then they also had insomnia being a bad effect with bupropion, again, 21.9%. 20, uh, there was a lot of uh, single serious burst events, although if you look at them, I don't necessarily see that they were all necessarily linked to the varincycline, but there was abdominal pain, atrial fibrillation, pneumonia, there was a possible stroke. Um, for bupropion, there was cholecystitis, septic shock, headache, and seizures. 
that one kind of makes sense for bupropion. And then for placebo, they link lung cancer, MI, and schizophrenia. I think these were just sort of, they happened when people were taking the studies. I don't, there was no real good link to them. Uh, and luckily, there was no deaths throughout the course of the study. So what can we sort of get out of this study is that continuous abstinence uh, was 2.5 times greater for varicycline than placebo. Women and men were about the same for their effects. And... Uh, over the whole year's work. And it appears that in the initial time frame, so just off the get-go, barren cycling is better than bupropion, but it sort of all evens out by the time of the year comes around. And folks appear to experience uh, less cravings and less withdrawal symptoms in the barren cycling arm. And it turns out that, um, like I said earlier, what those dual effects that we had talked about even out near the end of treatment. Bupropion sort of plateaus early, but sort of hangs out steady. Varicycline can actually sort of hang out a little bit longer. And unfortunately, this study is very limited in generalizability since we're looking at super healthy, both mentally as well as physically. And let's be honest, it's not our usual smoking population. <laughs> which is, you know, looking at Jen's study that it's almost like six years, seven, uh, seven years later, you would expect we would try to look at the other end of the smoking range. So it's hard. It's hard to quit. If you're just left to your own devices, it's maybe one out of ten. If you take one of these drugs, it's somewhere between one out of four and one out of five. Now, again, both these studies would point out both only gave the active drug for like eight weeks. So, you know, the, the bottom line is, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier, is like just because you get started on either bupropion or Shantex doesn't mean you're on it for the rest of your life. Maybe you shouldn't be on it for the rest of your life. Unfortunately, I think with general practice kind of uses, that's kind of what happens is, Someone says, you need this to stop smoking, and then five years later, you're still on the same drug, and perhaps the side effects are more risky, certainly with bupropion. So there's stuff out there. We still haven't found the magic bullet that's going to have a percentage better than 20, 25% to get you to stop smoking, despite all the other things that we that we do. But uh, I guess it's, it's a start, and I think the good news, if there is good news, is that ever since we've had the whole campaign about smoking is... The number of people in this country who smoke have fallen from like 40, 40, 50 percent in the age of the Surgeon General of the years. Many people didn't believe that stuff either, despite them reviewing 7,000 papers on the subject to the point where, you know, it's in the, in the teens percentage of the number of people who smoke in this country now. It's certainly worse in certain regions of the country than other regions of the country, depending on some cultural issues that are out there. So there we have it, 50-year anniversary of the Surgeon General's report. we still got a lot more work to do, but at least we've reviewed some of the drugs and their toxicities that are out there. So I appreciate everyone hanging in there, everyone's presentations, and we will see you all next month.